when you think mm. about persevering through pain or deep emotional trauma, it's not the thing that defines you, right? It's something that happens. It's, it's there. Sure. You live with it. You learn how to manage it. You accept it. You, you know, I like to say, breathe into it, feel it, but it's not the thing that defines you. My people, welcome to the Principled Minds podcast, where we bring to you a person or a message to help you uncover the core principles of making your vision for your career and personal life a reality. Relax, open your mind and be ready to receive at least one piece of information that may encourage you to take action today. Welcome to the family. My people, thank you for coming back to the show. So good to be spending time with you again. If you are new to the Principal Minds podcast, well, welcome to the family. So good to have you here as well. My name is Charles Mocha Jr. I am the founder and the host of the Principal Minds podcast. I am so excited for the conversation you're about to listen to because I learned so much from my conversation with our guests on this episode, one thing that I did learn, one major takeaway for me was that we cannot allow our pain, our grief, or whatever challenges we're going through in our life, whether it's in our career, in our business, in our personal life, to define us. We cannot give pain and grief that much permission. And we are going to learn today how our guest was able to persevere through pain. Our guest is a senior financial analyst at Amazon who discovered that her three-month-old son, Kian, had a malignant rhabdoid tumor and lost him to cancer. In the midst of her pain, in the midst of her grief, she partnered with her husband and channeled her energy to co-found Roar for Kian, a nonprofit organization established to fund pediatric cancer research and support families with children undergoing cancer treatment. Here to discuss how she persevered through pain, I present to you my friend and special guest, Sahar Shariati. I always love to start these episodes with uh, with gratitude. So I just want to say first a huge thank you for being on the show. Um, we're definitely happy to have you here. Oh man, no, the pleasure is all mine. This was like a dream come true for me. So thank you. <laughs> when you think about the past seven days, what would you yeah. say has really made you smile? Oh man, well, okay. So our daughter's in kindergarten now, right? And mm -hmm. so she's learning all these things and it's been like a nice, it's a little bit of a nostalgic feeling for Mike and I. So she came home one day, or maybe it was at, it was at the breakfast table, sorry. She started singing a song, she's like, peel the banana peel, peel, the banana. And all of a sudden Mike goes, oh my God, I know that song. And then he like looks it up on YouTube and there's like an entire dance to it where you peel the banana, peel, peel oh the banana, mash the potato, mash, mash the potato. <laughs> and we're just like sitting around doing like this song and we're just all laughing and just having the best time. So I think, I think the thing that makes me smile most is getting to like relive like fond childhood things and silliness like through the lens of our daughter and it was just ridiculous and we looked like idiots and it was wonderful <laughs> sometimes it's those moments that really remind you of how human you are you know yeah. regardless of anything you're going through <laughs> so next time you're having a bad moment Charles just think Pew, the banana, banana is <laughs> 
I'll send you the link to that song. I mean, it's, it's good. <laughs> I feel like it's one of those songs that would just keep playing in your head, um, even after <laughs> after a couple of days. <laughs> it totally does. Look, it's still with me a week later, right? I'm just, you know, sitting at my desk thinking, peel the banana. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is phenomenal. I'm so glad you had that moment. Um, it's really those moments that we almost cannot forget, regardless of what happens, you know? Yeah, um, great. So let's dive into the topic of persevering through pain. That is really the, yeah. the meat of our conversation today. You are someone that I regard as a strong woman who has been able to go through the journey of losing, I would say, a gift that almost every human looks forward to receiving, which is a gift of a mm -hmm. child. Before we dive into the loss of your child, I want to first of all talk about your philosophy about pain. Um, so I'm going to take you back, take you yeah. back to your, to your childhood, right? Yeah, so when you think me. about um, when you were growing up, mm -hmm. what was your first introduction to emotional pain? And how did you, oh. during those times, persevere through that pain or what was your thought process on how to persevere or deal with that type of emotional pain I think back I actually think about this a lot we had when I was younger I had um I had a I had a ulcerative colitis which was like an irritable bowel disease and so from a very young age there was a lot of hospital visits a lot of physical and emotional discomfort I couldn't do like the normal things a kid would want to do right I couldn't mm -hmm. You know, when I was having a colitis flare up, it's like you had to rest, you had to be in bed, you or you were admitted into the hospital because you had so much internal bleeding or things like that, right? So I never had like a very normal, like healthy childhood. I was introduced to like, this concept of pain and suffering, like in my own physical body at an early age, which then of course manifests to like emotional issues as well, right? You're mm -hmm. sad that you can't like go out and run around. And I think that. The, the thing that got me through this all is really just, I remember sitting there and my dad never made me feel like there was something wrong with me. He'd be like, all right, well, this is just the thing we got to get through. We're going to do it, check the box, and then we're going to move on, right? And, and it's not the thing that defines you. So I think when you think mm. about persevering through pain or deep emotional trauma, it's not the thing that defines you, right? It's something that happens. It's it's there, sure, you live with it, you learn how to manage it, you accept it, you, you know, I like to say, breathe into it, feel it, but it's not the thing that defines you. So I, um, you know, as a child, that's, that's what I learned. That's how I learned to like manage emotional, emotional trauma or physical trauma. It's not the mm. thing that defines me. I see. About what age were you during that time? Yeah, I was, um, I was 12, 12. Oh, wow. You were really yeah. young. Yeah, feels really young now as I as I had a new birthday <laughs> last Sunday. Yeah, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's like over over 20, 20 years ago. You're just like, whoa. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, and yeah. And, be, and I remember to... my oh sorry, I was gonna say my mom too. She's just like such a, a woman of faith. You know, I just remember her. She'd always just be like, well, just pray. Just pray. Like, you know. So my dad on the one hand was very like strong and my mom just was very soft and like mm -hmm. submit, like submitting to like what is and trying to like build that acceptance around it. So it's just, it was a nice balance to have between the two. So would you say you, you observed how they dealt with situations and, and in some way deployed those attributes 
to deal mm-hmm. with your your emotional pain during that time. Totally. I mean, I think that's what all kids do is we see the people around us and then we integrate those experiences as how we deal with these things. That is amazing. So you went through high school, went through college. Um, where did you go to college? I went to George Mason. I started at VCU, oh, nice. transferred to Mason for undergrad and master's through GW. Oh, wow. That is yeah. wonderful. So you yeah. did that. When did you find your the love of your life? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. At a bar in Alexandria. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you serious? Person. Yeah. Are you talking about my husband? Yes, your husband. He's truly a love. He is a definite one of the loves of my life. I mean, I think my children are definitely my others and my sister and my parents, mm-hmm. but like, the, the the love of my life with whom I choose to build a partnership with, I, I met in a bar in Alexandria. <laughs> so if anyone lives in the area, O'Connell's is a wonderful spot to go and have a drink and potentially meet the loves of your life. Well, I know that. Listen, note taken. <laughs> note taken. <laughs> now, there was a mutual friend there that helped make the introduction. You went ahead and married this love of your life that you found at yeah. a bar. <laughs> yeah. Um, each other let's like right <laughs> so that happened mm-hmm. um what was your your vision for yourself and your family as you went into that partnership with your with your now husband oh man I you know I my our parents are divorced right so I knew I did not want that I remember when Mike proposed I was like this is like a one-shot deal for me man like you know you work through the issues you like mm-hmm. are committed to the vision and and what have you and I I definitely didn't grow up with like, I always wanted like a really meaningful Christmas because, you know, growing Mm. up in an Iranian American household, we didn't do a big Christmas. Right. And Mm -hmm. let's just say home alone got me. I wanted like that big Christmas tree (laughs) and the lights all over the house. And I mean, I didn't want my parents to like leave me in burglars to come to the house, but the general, like, you know, beautiful, Mm -hmm. like Christmas, whatever board games and all that stuff. And so that was, yeah, I thought we'd get married, finish school, like have children and then just, you know, have a home with beautiful trees and my like, kids mm-hmm. running around and like really family focused. I wanted to play board games with the kids like every night. I just wanted like a tight family. Um, I had like this tight family vision where there's lots of laughter, lots of joy, lots of mm-hmm. warmth, you know, like, and then adventures, like traveling with them and having these experiences. And yeah, it was kind of, it's a dream. I heard on one of the podcasts that you recently, I think sometime this year, uh, yeah. recorded that a trigger to life podcast. Yeah. You mentioned that there was a time in your marriage when you both felt like there was a chance that you may not give birth or you may yeah. not conceive of a child. How did you go about uh, persevering through that journey, hearing that news? How did you react? And what are the things that you did to give yourself hope if you did see that there was any glimpse of hope in the future. Yeah, that was definitely shattering. I mean, as someone who had this vision of like a, fa- mm-hmm. of, you know, full living room with like kids and a Christmas tree and like gifts and all that stuff, um, you know, that was that was super hard to hear. I yeah, I was really young. I mean, it wasn't like I was like fifty and trying to mm-hmm. <laughs> have my first kid. I was, I was barely thirty. I think I just turned thirty. You know, so it was a very mm-hmm young age um to have to go through something like that and and a lot of that was a product of being sick you know when I was younger mm-hmm. um and the the narrative behind that and I call it a narrative it's you know it's the story the doctors told me and is 
you know, you had so much scarring from all your surgeries and all this other stuff that we just don't think that like, Mm -hmm. we don't think that the egg can get into an, an implant into your uterus. Right. And of course, like going through in vitro is super expensive and like not, but they were basically like, look, you're not going to naturally get pregnant. And like, mm. it was just a huge grieving process. Right. Um, and you know, I, it came back to the, this is not the thing that defines me. There are many ways to a family. We can, we can adopt, we could foster, we could surrogate, we could do IVF. There were just so many other things to like look to for hope and not to focus on the fact, oh, well, my body is broken. Right. And so that's kind of, that was the mindset I was working towards and trying to have. And then like all of a sudden one day I just, I fell pregnant. Like I, I remember like <laughs> waking up and being like, I'm late. And I'm like, oh damn, it must be menopause. Menopause at 30. Years I'm like, I go to, and it's like 4 30 in the morning. I'm on my way to the gym. I was like, I'll just take this stupid test, you know, like whatever. And I'm just sitting there. And then like, you know, you pee on the stick, you go wash your hands and then you look down and you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm pregnant. You know? <laughs> so it's like a total oh my shock. God. Right. I remember like waking Mike up at like 4 30 in the morning and being like, I'm pregnant. I'm pregnant. Oh man. And I'm like waving this thing in his face. And he's like, what the hell is going on? You know, it's like 4 30 in the morning. Where, the, where are you even going? You know? <laughs> And, um, and yeah, and so Yara was kind of like a miracle baby to us because the doctor said, you can't get pregnant, like not naturally, at least you have to go through all these hoops. And then one day I just got pregnant. So, um, was there anything in you that made you feel like it could, there is a possibility that you could get pregnant? Did you take the doctor's word for it or did you? Oh yeah. I told, I mean, like you want to believe your medical professionals. Right. And I mm-hmm. think that that became a big part of what Kian's journey as well is like, mm-hmm. do you believe in the medical professionals or do you hold on to like what you know, what the fact that you know that miracles happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, at that point I was like, yeah, I must be right. I must be broken. I must not like work. I can't just like have this thing that I wanted and mm-hmm. the, you know, with this man that I married and not conventionally at least, right? Mm-hmm. So. So you give birth to your daughter, your beautiful daughter yeah, that I've had the pleasure of meeting. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know. She's oh, she's just a ball of energy. It's great. But then you weren't also, you weren't only able to give birth to one child. You give birth to another, um, a beautiful boy yes. uh, named Total Kian. surprise, by the way, because we were like, well, it possibly happened twice. <laughs> How did you feel when you give birth to him? What was the difference between what you felt when you give birth to him compared to when you gave birth to your daughter? You know, when Yara was born, it was like, I knew I would have her, like she was just there forever, right? Like mm-hmm. I was like, there's no rush. There's no, I mean, as a new mom, you you want to soak in every single second mm-hmm. like that newborn. But I never like worried, right? If someone else wanted to hold her, I never worried that like, oh, I'll get her back. It'll be okay, right? And with Kian, the second they placed him on top of me, I was like, I just knew I wasn't going to have him for very long. Hmm. And it was a very like profound, like disturbing feeling. Right. And it's like, well, why would I think that? But I always thought from the moment I saw him that something was wrong and, you know, they kind of all like, Oh, it's just postpartum. It's anxiety. It's all these things. And it's like, well, I don't feel anxious. And I really truly do want to be happy and enjoy like every moment of this bliss, but I feel like something is wrong. 
I mean, I kept taking him to the doctor. I took him to the doctor for like weight checks and like check his belly and does it look big and like all these other things. And like, yeah, so it was just a very big difference from having Yara versus like Kian. And every time we went, they're like, he's fine. Go home and enjoy. He's doing beautifully. You know, and you're like, you want to believe that, right? But like, there's something about that deep-seated intuition that was just like, no, I think you need to go back. Did your husband feel the same way? Or was it just you? Um, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever asked Mike if he felt the same way. I think that Mike was very, you know, oh my God, I wish I could go grab him from the other room. Like, hey, <laughs> um, he was, I think he was more prone to believing like that the doctors were right. And that maybe I was just being, cause I am very hypervigilant and like mm-hmm. a little bit of a worry wart and like make like to make sure that all my scenarios are planned for and accounted for you know like if this then that and so he's probably like oh she's probably doing the if this then that and then that then this and like <laughs> yeah it sounds like there were a couple of people that probably thought that about you where they thought you were worrying too much did you ever address that with those people to let them know that hey this this is truly how I feel and there is something behind what I'm feeling for anyone that is listening right now that probably has a hunch of some sort as they go through their journey. And for whatever reason, there is a misinterpretation or a different interpretation of how you're feeling. How did you address uh, those moments? You know, I, I just kept going back, you know, I, I don't think I ever said, you know, I never said anything like you are wrong and I'm right. Cause I have this mm-hmm. feeling but I would just call and be like, Hey, can we come back again? I just don't feel it would help soothe my worries. Right. If you could, if you could do this. And and now I think we do live in an age where like postpartum maternal, like mental health is, is, you know, like mm-hmm. definitely um, a thing like that doctors look out for. And so they were more than happy to like accommodate those visits, but like nothing ever came from them until like the day before he was admitted to the hospital. Mm. Um, so so how- for anyone in that situation, I would say stick to it, like keep going back, keep, keep getting the reassurance or keep digging or find a different doctor that you think will like listen. Um, because, you know, you, no one knows your child or yourself for that matter, as well as you do. Right. And um, yeah, so we're all, we're all unique individuals. Right. And I think that that's some, that's sometimes something that like gets a little bit lost in like the medical field, right? Like mm-hmm. we have data and we have things that support it and it's this pool and we know what's kind of normal and what's not normal, but you don't, you also don't know where you individually might fall on like that curve of normal to like the, you know, like tails of the, or of the spectrum. So he was three and a half months old um, when you yeah. noticed that something was wrong. Yeah. Three uh, when, when, what is it that you noticed about him that changed that made you think, okay, I think we do need to see the doctor ASAP. He was a super agreeable baby. Like he was always very like happy, easy to please. Mm. And like, there was this one day where he would not stop crying mm. and he wasn't nursing either. That was, he loved to eat. Right. And he wasn't nursing and he was crying. And I was like, this is not right. And he had just been in for his three month checkup. Like he had just gotten like a checkup, his belly palp- palpated everything. And I finally called the doctor. And I was like, I have to bring him in. And then it was a different doctor than the one we had been seeing. And she like immediately just sent us over to the hospital and was like, you need to get an x-ray. Um, so it was just, he was acting not like his usual happy baby self, you know? Mm-hmm. And 
I was like, oh, finally, like we're doing, you know, we're doing something about this. And I was like, they're probably, you know, maybe he's got like trapped gas or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I never thought like they would come back and learn to be like, your child is a solid mass in his abdomen and we're admitting you into the HEMOC unit. Like it was something that didn't happen to us, right? Like it happens to everybody else. So when you heard that news, how did you feel? What happened at that moment? It was surreal. I mean, I think the ground, I felt like the ground had just shifted from underneath mm. me and I was like topsy-turvy. I don't know if, if you've ever seen the movie Labyrinth. Yes. Yeah. But you know, like that scene where David Bowie is like walking through the castle mm-hmm. and like they're switching for the baby and the staircases keep changing and they're walking on like upside down and whatever. I mean, the hospital basically turned into that for me. Like I knew I was upright, but like I didn't, I didn't feel like I was upright. Mm. And I remember like calling my dad and being like, Hey, they found a tumor. They found a mass inside of Keon. And as, even as I was saying it, it was like, a, like I, I was like outside of my body. Mm. It was just unbelievably like surreal. And like that feeling of maybe I'll wake up, like <laughs> maybe this isn't a terrible, terrible dream, but it was like super, it was not what you were, not what I was expecting. Oh man. Yeah. It's, uh, it's definitely not a news that anyone looks forward to at all. Um, but I also kind of help but wonder what you pulled from your past experiences, um, of emotional pain that you were able to use to sustain yourself through these moments. Um, I know you mentioned being able to say, listen, this doesn't define me, but how were you even able to deploy those, um, those lessons in, a situation that is drastically different from what you have ever experienced before. Yeah, totally. I mean, totally. It's like, it's not even about me, right? It's about Mm -hmm. this thing that like this person that I would literally like lay my life down for, right. That I would in a second take any illness or ailment from either of my children and like glad, like give them health. Right. And I couldn't even do that. Right. I couldn't be like, yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't about me. And it was one of those things that I was like, I almost felt like how my parents must have felt when I was sick, like suit up, get ready for this battle. It's not going to be easy. I had been in and out of hospital systems, like for a good chunk of my like life. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is going to suck. Like, <laughs> this is going to be hard. And like, and, and he's young. I can't even like leave him. Right. I have mm-hmm. to, I have, and he was nursing at the time. Right. I was like, I have to, I literally feed this baby. I am the source of food. So I cannot even go anywhere. Um, and I think the thing, the thing that got me through that was, I remember my sister stayed with me that night and she was like, like, it's going to be okay. Like, we're going to get through this. And I just, I leaned on her that night and that's, then it's, something that got me through so that brings up another point which is like the community that we have right the Mm -hmm. the support system that we have like one don't let it define you and two learn to like lean on the people that love you deeply let me guess you are enjoying the conversation (laughs) well if that's the case share the episode with a family or friend you never know who could be impacted by this conversation while you're at it go ahead and subscribe so that you'll be the first to know whenever we release an episode and take a screenshot of the episode and tag me on instagram at principal mind so that that way i will get to know you and also get to know what you think about the episode all right let's get back to the show
what have you learned about grief now that was different from anything that you have experienced in the past? Um, that sometimes it doesn't go away, right? Like, think about a, a really bad breakup, for example, and you're like laying on the floor thinking like, that's it, like I'll never find love again or happiness or, or like a major disappointment or even like the loss of like a grandparent or anything like that, like any, and those things all seem to ease with time, right? Like the loss of a relationship. You normally like kind of move past it and find something else or you learn from it, right? And I just don't think that this is a grief, like having birthed a child and then losing that child. I don't, maybe not for me yet, is that it's something I've, I'm learning how to carry with me and still finding mm. joy in my day to day. It's like, how do I not waste this pain? How do I transmute it into something that's beautiful and nurturing and not like draining and exhausting? but still acknowledging that it hurts every single day, right? I mean, I have like this giant Keon poster behind me and it's like, sometimes people are like, well, I just, I didn't ask because I didn't want to remind you. And it's like, you don't, you don't have to remind me. <laughs> it's there. I carry it's there it with me. Yeah. It with me. And the thing that I also learned that I didn't think was possible was I truly thought that this would destroy me, right? I thought mm. like this is, I had fought for so long. Um, during that process, it was just like this every day, like it felt like going into a battle, right? And then to feel like I'm so depleted and so exhausted. And then just like coming back with not the victory that you wanted, you're just like, I'm never going to recover. I'm never going to recover. <laughs> I'm always going to be exhausted and sad. And then, and then you see something, you see your, at that point, four-year-old come in and ask for a hug or you see her laughing and you're just like, oh my gosh, there's still so much more to live for, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And then you, you know, you slowly find your way back into like the things that you, that you loved, the things that were there before you became a parent to a child mm -hmm. that were like fulfilling, right? Your relationships, your marriage, your, your other children. Um, so yeah. Did I answer you know your what? question? Absolutely. Yeah. Beautifully. Talking about, um, uh, things that remind you of Kian. I do have my glass hey! here <laughs> with Kian's name, and yeah. I literally have it right next. This is what I use in refreshing myself when I'm yes! in a podcast interview. Um, and it's something that it's a very special gift that I'm going to continue to hold on to because Kian, even though he's not physically here, has made a significant impact in the lives of so many. And we're going to talk about what um, you're doing in terms of the organization that you have created to support um, uh, yeah. funding researchers. Um, however, before we dive into that, I wanted to quickly talk about some of the practical things that you did in order to get yourself through this. Because you did mention that, mm -hmm. you know, going through this, you never thought you could make it. You know, you thought this would completely break you, but talk a yeah. little bit about the things that you did, some practical things, whether it's going to uh, going uh, for counseling or whatever the case may be yeah. that helped get you through this or is helping you currently as you go through this journey. Yeah. So, I mean, I think any advice to someone going through this is find a really good therapist that can give you tools to help process and move like your, 
your grief or your pain through, right? It's not, it's not just about the talk therapy. That's super important, right? But it's, there's mm-hmm. also other things that you can do, um, like breath work or um, like, you know, I used to punch a pillow like every day for five minutes, you know? <laughs> and that was something that Cami from the Trigger to Life podcast actually taught me was like just punching a pillow to help move like that energy out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think so like counseling, think about unorthodox things like breath work, punching pillows, um, any sort of physical movement or like meditative state, like going for walks, and just like listening to nature, like gives your brain, like the, just some time to process what happened and like help kind of release that stuff that you're feeling. Um, you know, we eat really well in this house. We try to eat pretty clean uh, because what, you know, what I found is the worse I eat, the less I feel. Mm. And so it's like, if I'm too busy focused on like how physically uncomfortable I am, because I have like, you know, I don't know, I don't eat meat, but if, for example, if you eat like five cheeseburgers or something, mm-hmm. the less you're likely to be like, how is my emotional well-being? Because you're too focused on like the immediate the now. Right. And so, um, I think that that's like, I, you know, personally think that that's important for someone that's like moving any big emotions, right. It's mm-hmm. trying to eat really well so that your, your body is supported, um we've done like we've done yoga we're um we we write a lot and I don't know and then just finding like joy within like community right like finding other people that you can laugh with that you can Mm. cry with that you can just show up and be as you are without any expectation of whatever I think is super important um what else we do oh I started taking guitar lessons Oh, I was nice. like, literally, I was like, I need to do something to like change, like the, the way my brain thinks. And they talk about music therapy and like neuroplasticity and like kind of rewiring your brain. And I was like, all right, I'm going to take guitar lessons. I'm terrible. I'm awful. <laughs> but like, I show up every week. And my our guitar teacher is a complete saint. He was very encouraging and just like, oh, yeah, good for you. You can play a chord now. <laughs> <Eight months> <laughs> or what 12 months almost 12 months later so um yeah pick up new hobbies just find something else to 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 help soothe like you know what you're going through so beyond taking self-care and doing everything that you need to do to take care of yourself i'm sure that there are loved ones who um would also want to be able to show that they care for you and they love you and they want to be there for you um what would you say to people who are friends of people going through grief and how yeah. they can effectively support them during their time of grief? Yeah. Again, this is like based on my experience. So I'm sure you'll get a multitude of answers here, but the thing I found in the friends that I know that have, that are in the similar situation, saying our children's names, looking at videos of them with us, um, not being discomforted by our, by our pain, uh, is critical, right? Because we already feel alienated. And then Mm -hmm. to have like this, this huge part of us that's not acknowledged is incredibly painful. Um, I love, like, even at work, like I, I love it when coworkers ask me a question about Keon or remember a date or say something. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful, it's, it's a, I think we, I think culturally we need to get really comfortable with people crying, right? Like 
it's okay. It's okay if someone's crying. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to make them feel better. It's going to be uncomfortable for you. But if it's uncomfortable for you, imagine how bad it is for the person experiencing it. So, 100%. Um, so I think like, yeah, definitely saying children, our children's names or the loved ones' names, right? Because we, we lose people that are not just our children, right? We lose, eventually everyone will die, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think that's that's important. And also like not putting a timetable on things, you know, people mm. move through things at the pace that they need to move through it. Um, you might have a, a, a someone who's lost someone like five or six years ago and it may still hit them very hard right and mm-hmm. I think the worst thing you could say to someone is like oh like I'm surprised that this still affects you you know like mm-hmm. well yeah I mean it was a huge thing and I'm still processing it so you know just kind of being accepting of that and showing that it goes back to what you said about you know sometimes most times the pain that you encounter the grief that you encounter is going to stay with you for a while yeah. uh, so not putting a timetable on someone because you were able to go over you know go through your grief and get over it um is something that we definitely want to avoid and i i 100 agree with that um because that can even bring up a stir up an emotion um yeah. that you were not expecting you know as a result right. of someone trying to force their your perception of of how long you should go through your grief or pain. Yeah, totally. You did say something else that I found really interesting. You said, I'm mad at the system and the fact that there isn't enough to fund pediatric cancer. Would you say that was the reason why you started this organization? Well, the... (laughs) The real reason we started this organization and this even started was I didn't want flowers. <laughs> I literally oh. got to hospice and I was like, oh God, don't let them send flowers. <laughs> My mom is one of nine. I have like a ton of first cousins. Like we have a large community. And I was like, oh gosh, like that's going to be a crap ton of flowers. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, it's always like terrible because someone sends you a plant, right? And you're like, I'm going to kill this plant. And then this dead plant is going to be the reminder that I couldn't like, you know, like a, <laughs> dying in life. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got home and I was like, oh God, no, 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 not flowers. And it was like two days after he passed. And like, I immediately like called his doctor and she was like, don't you want to take some time? And I'm like, nope, like <laughs> give me everything now. I have to like set this up. So I think we got the, the giving page. And so, yeah, what really moved me was like, just knowing once you get past like the initial um, treatment protocols, there's like not a lot of research as to, there's not a lot of understanding of cancer, especially not pediatric cancer, because kids are different than adults, right? They, mm-hmm. they heal differently. They, they, um, they're just different, right? Like, and so, uh, there's there's not a lot of funding there and and I initially was like oh can we like donate his tumor or something and they were like yeah that's a really hard process not going to happen we would have had to have coordinated that before he even died like <laughs> it's like oh man okay so so then you know it became a place of well where can we if people aren't going to send flowers what are they going to what are we going to do like and mm-hmm. and I remember all like the research facilities that we kind of talk to and stuff and trying to find like treatment protocols and um and just hearing like you know if you're in the community kind of hear like how underfunded cancer research is and like how 
a lot of the treatment protocols haven't been updated for, I don't know, over like 10 or 15 years. I'm kind of making up numbers. It might actually be longer than that. Um, and you're like, well, I think this is like the biggest way we can make an impact right now is mm -hmm. by setting something up with one of the cancer institutes for research mm -hmm. purposes. And we had met Dr. Mullen on like our relapse journey. So when he had relapsed, we went up to Boston and we met with her and she was just, she was the first doctor, I think that looked at Keon and gave me hope, even though mm -hmm. he had relapsed. And I think every other doctor that looked at him, it's like he had a death sentence stamp, stamped on his mm. forehead. And I was just like, oh, this is like energetically, like such a terrible environment to be in. But Dr. Mullen was like so wonderful. And we knew, and she has this renal tumor fund. And that's, that's where we thought we could make like the biggest impact was by donating to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And so that's, that's how it kind of started was we started this with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And then Mike was, he's like, he's totally on board with that. Right. But he was like, well, what are we going to do with the families now today? And so, um, he's been really wanting to do more community services and we're like, well, why don't we just form a nonprofit so we can do it both. We can do mm -hmm. Um, the cancer research, which is important to think about the future stuff. And then we can do community services so that today we can help a family and they don't have to wait for something better in 10 years, right? We can mm. give them a healthy meal or, um, you know, get a house cleaning service or something. And so that's kind of how, that's how our Keon started was we wanted to have autonomy to make an impact today, not just like 10 years down the line. That is very powerful. And for everyone listening, I want you to understand that in the midst of her and her family going through this grief, uh, the grief of losing a child to cancer. Um, it led to them creating a non-for-profit organization called Raw Wikian. Um, it is uh, an organization that um, funds uh, pediatric cancer research and supporting families with children ongoing cancer treatments. Um, what were some of the challenges are uh, you faced when you were looking to start this, this organization? Were there initial things that you had to think about? And first of all, how did you even come up with a name? That's such a creative name. Um, so Kian has a little dinosaur buddy named Rar. And so, and then he used to walk around the house. So we were like, and we always go, we'd always go, Kian, Kian, can you, what is the dinosaur? And he goes, Rar. And he goes, oh, wow. So I'll have to find a video and like put it onto the website. But um, when when we set up the fund with Dana Farber, we called it Last Ra um, Keon's Last Rar because mm -hmm. we didn't realize it was going to turn into this thing, right? And so, so when we decided to go into like a our actual nonprofit, we were like, well, it's not his last Rar because it's going to be continuous. And we were mm -hmm. like, oh, what if we just all Rar for Keon? You know, like. So that's the evolution of the name. And that was probably the hardest thing. One of the hardest things was coming up with a, a name, right? A name. I, was, I was like very, very, very felt strongly about having Keon's name in the organization. Mm -hmm. And Mike was like, oh, but we could do anything. And, and I was like, no, it has to be, it has to be, you know, IRS jammed and sealed, like in the whatever database for nonprofits. Yeah. And what else is so challenging, like challenging that? I mean, I think there's just so many decisions to be made, right? Like operationally, whether it's like, um, what, what are the colors you're going to use? Uh, mm -hmm. like, are you, how are you going to maintain your database of donors? 
Um, are you going to maintain your database of donors or is it going to be a free for all? How do you mm-hmm. disperse the funds between cancer research and meal services? And um, what are, what's like, what's our mission? Like even just writing out a mission statement, right? Or a vision statement. Those are all very, especially when you co-collaborate with someone with someone and then that's mm-hmm. someone also being the person that you're married to. There's a ton yeah. of, there's a lot of layers in there, right? So it's, mm-hmm. can you <laughs> it's, imagine? Yeah, a ton of layers. And we also have a wonderful marketing um, marketing person. Meg has been instrumental in keeping us organized and uh, making sure that we have like a path forward and like we're, we're actually asking for donations because, you know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy to talk about the experience and be like, yeah, if you can, I'm like, donate some money. And she's like, no, you got to make the ask. You always have to make the ask, right? And mm-hmm. I'm always like, oh, is that okay? Because it's really <laughs> underfunded and it would be a good thing to ask for money for, right? And um so kind of getting over like that mental shift for anyone listening that is wondering okay this lady went through this lady and her family went through this uh this period of grief um and even as they went through that they were able to think through what what could come out of it that is positive um leading to this organization for Kian being created um, what would you say is the core mission of this organization? We hope that this organization helps us. We hope, well, there's two parts to it, right? There's the can- the research mandate. So we want to understand cancer better. Um, the initiative that we're looking at will do um, like DNA sequencing of tumor cells, which will then make, and then which will allow doctors to do a blood draw to see if someone has cancer. So like right now, if someone they think someone has cancer, they have to go through like a CT scan, a biopsy. Mm. Um, and so with like this innovation, it's like a blood draw, right? So there's no, there's no surgery, there's no scanning, there's no waiting. It's like quick, much, much, much quicker. So that's like the longer term term goal. And then also just making a positive impact today and supporting the families that are going through this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember, I remember people bringing us meals and like, that was wonderful, right? We didn't have to worry about what are we going to cook for dinner or cleaning up the kitchen. We could just enjoy our last moments with like our family. Um, and we didn't know they were going to be our last moments. Right. But it certainly, it certainly helped kind of ease the burden on us. Um, so we're really hoping that we can have a future where we understand and can diagnose and treat cancer better and today make a difference in the family's life so that they are able to enjoy their time with their families as opposed to worrying about some tactical things that they need to mm-hmm. do. So what, what, what has been your, uh, your funding goal and how much have you, how much have you raised so far? Yeah. So we decided we were going to raise a hundred thousand dollars in a Ooh, year. That's, yes. I love yeah. that. That's pretty bold. Oh my gosh. And we are $87,000. Wow, so that is amazing! Close, super close, yeah. I love the ambitious goal, and hey, you yeah. never know what happens when you push the envelope. You know, <laughs> I know, I know. I'm like, there's still like what 14 days left, 15 days left in December. <laughs> that is amazing. Well, for you listening, I encourage you to go ahead and donate, and we're going to share the link to 
um, uh, the website and where you can easily donate to support this cause. Um, could you talk a little bit about what the process looks like after the donation happens? So as people, you know, send this yeah. money across, what happens from there, from your perspective in terms of how it goes to the various uh, organizations or other causes that you're collaborating with? So we're, um, we're going to retain like a small portion. So I think right now we're probably keeping like 10% for meal services mm-hmm. for families impacted. Um, right now, like the rest of the money gets uh, wire transferred to Dana-Farber Cancer Institute for um, research initiatives. Um, so that's that right now is the process. Um, gotcha. and, and we're going to have a bigger planning meeting um, to talk about all the other places we might like start funneling the money, but that will be, you know, we'll keep we'll keep donors apprised and send letters. We, we send, I feel like we send a lot of emails. So we try to send um, emails to our donors and letters and just let them know what the updates are and what we've done and give them status updates. Zahar, you are an inspiration. Your family is an inspiration. Kian is an inspiration. And we are just so happy to well, at least I am so happy to have had this conversation with you. And I'm hoping that it, that the person listening right now has in some way learned one or two things that they can implement in their lives as they go through any type of grief, um, uh, especially the grief of losing a loved one. Um, but I want to just commend you and your family for um, just completely being comfortable with carrying on Kian's legacy in his absence and living for him by being the best versions of yourself and continuing to support people who are going through a very similar journey. As we round this up, if the listener, anyone listening right now did not take anything away from this episode, (laughs) what is one principle, especially as it relates to um, going through pain or grief, what is one principle you'd want them to leave with? Uh, I always say onwards, always onwards. That's kind of my little motto for every day. I have it right behind me. Um, the first thing, it's one of the first things I see when I walk into my office. And that doesn't mean that you ignore or not feel and process what you're feeling um, or going through or acknowledge it. It just means that you learn how to carry it and keep moving. Um, because there's so many beautiful things in life, right? And it would be a shame to miss them from my perspective, you know, it's... Absolutely, absolutely. Where can people find you? Well, me personally or the organization? You and the organization. (laughs) How can they get Um, to you? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So I I am on Instagram. Um, It's just, uh, I can, if there's show notes, I can just send the handle, Um, me personally, but you can also follow Rar for Kian um at instagram and also varforkeon.org is the website thank you again for for joining us here on the principal minds podcast and for you listening i want to say a huge thank you for sticking with us uh till the end of this episode um principled minds can be found on instagram at principled minds and linkedin uh and as the host you can find me on linkedin as well at charles morka um and i'm really encouraging everyone listening please visit uh org and donate. Um, there are a lot of people out there, a lot of families going through this situation that are dependent on support from you and I to, to in some way support them as they go through their journey. Yeah. Uh, so, so please go ahead and, and, uh, and donate.
Can I make a quick plug for that sure. and how you can help? Um, there are three ways you can help. Obviously, direct donation is always wonderful. Buy us a cup of coffee is what I like to say. $5 goes a long way in pediatric cancer research um, initiatives. And the second way you can donate is volunteer your time. We do events, we need volunteers, we need people to do check-ins, we need help coordinating, um, like sending auction items and things like that. And then the third way is to just share our story. So follow us, share our story, um, which is, you know, little, little effort, right? Just mm-hmm. click the share button on Instagram, post it to your story. And, uh, and yeah, so there are three ways that people can get involved and help um, spread the word for Bar for Kian. In order to even support in in sharing the message for Rafa Kian, I encourage you to share this particular episode as well with your family, with your friends, with your community, so that people get to know more about situations like this and also know how to support families going through these type of situations. All right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Sahar, pleasure to have you here as always. Okay. Take care. Bye.